Well, this morning uh, will look a little bit different. Normally I have <laughs> that pulpit up here, that big black metal one, and it looks like us teaching from the Bible for 35 minutes or so. Um, we're still going to do some teaching. It's just going to be a little bit different this morning in a good way. Um, there's a question that's come down through church history over the years, and it's the question of what constitutes a church. Now, what constitutes a true church? What, what is it that makes a church a church? And, and not to be silly, but if a group of Christians go out to dinner on a Tuesday night and one of them prays, is that a church? Well, what if one of them reads a Bible verse? What, what if they do it regularly every Tuesday night? What if, what if they don't do it on Tuesday? What if they do it on Sunday morning? Then is it a church? Or what if a group of Christians get together in an inner city and they tell people about Jesus and they serve the poor, do the sorts of things that Jesus would want us to do in any place? Does that make that a church? Or what about us? Are we a church because we have a building? What makes a church a church? Well, one answer that's come down through church history, and I think is a good one, is a very simple one. It's word and sacrament. What makes a church a church? Word and sacrament, or some people prefer the word ordinances, meaning the things that the Lord has ordained, like water, not like, but water baptism and the Lord's Supper. So the right preaching of God's word, the right preaching of the gospel through all of the Bible, right and regular, and the right and regular administration of the sacraments or the ordinances, water baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, why am I bringing all of this up? Our church has been around almost 20 years. And as I understand it, we've never in one individual service ever done uh, the preaching of the word, baptisms, and communion in one service. Now, that's not to say we become a church this morning. I'm not saying that. But it is to say we do have the privilege this morning of participating in a wonderful way those things that make a church a church. And there's all sorts of things implied with Word and sacrament. There's elders and leaders and who's administering the sacraments. So there's questions and there's more to it than that. But that is the simple answer. And as we frame kind of the moment here, what we're going to do, and as I lead us into a time of prayer before I open up Psalm 107, I want to read a quote to sort of set the stage for what we're doing in preaching and what we're doing in baptism and what we're doing in the Lord's Supper. It comes from a modern author. It's it's an author I like. I've read all of his books. Um, This is his most recent one, Competing Spectacles, Treasuring Christ in the Media Age. And, and, and spectacles, as he uses it, you know, they can be those things you wear uh, to help you see better. And it's partly that. But in the context of this quote, a spectacle is an event. So the Super Bowl is a spectacle. The 2016 presidential election was a spectacle or multiple spectacles. Uh, when in-game Avengers movie, which I haven't seen because I haven't watched any of the 22 of those movies. Some of you have. I'm not, you know, that's okay if you watch them. But that's a spectacle. It's been a huge event culturally. When the church gathers, that's a spectacle. That's an event. And here's what uh, Tony Ranke has to say about that from a middle section of his book. He writes, The church is a divine spectacle of God's victory over evil. Just so it's on the back of your sermon notes if you wanted to see it, so you'll have it. Match to, or we could say put alongside of, the multi-million dollar CGI spectacles of Hollywood. The church's interior spectacles seem dull. 
but they are beautiful and profound. Each week, the local church reenacts the same things. Bible preaching, the Lord's table, water baptism, all of them faith-based, repeated micro-spectacles. They're small. Unlike the sight-based and unrepeated, expiring spectacles of the world. These church ordinances are weighted with cosmic influence. In Colossians and Ephesians, which are two letters that the Apostle Paul wrote in the New Testament, Paul is careful to show how the gospel-driven love and unity of local churches is a spectacle of the victory of Christ to the powers and principalities who seek to destroy God's created order. In other words, there's a watching unseen realm that's looking over the shoulders of the church each week. And he writes, the church is the perpetual resistance movement. And from generation to generation, She displays a spectacle of God's victory to his cosmic foes, repeatedly striking those enemies with deja vu of their defeat at the cross. In other words, when the church gathers week in, week out, it feels ordinary. But to an unseen watching world, something extraordinary is happening. And not only to the unseen world, but to believers as we are nourished and encouraged about what the Lord has done for us as our Redeemer. So I invite you to pray with me, and then we're going to open up Psalm 107 together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I think about this moment the way I often think about weddings. In a wedding, I find myself praying and even saying that we would, asking that we would be enabled to see the invisible. That is, through the ceremony, through the vows, through the sermonette that we would be able to see that you are the one wedding a couple together and I pray in a similar way now that you would give us eyes to see the invisible that through the preaching of the word through the participation of this church watching a baptism through our partaking together of the Lord's Supper that we would be enabled to see in real and tangible ways your love for us in the gospel And what it means to follow you in grace and truth and in joy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Psalm 107. We're going to spend about 10 minutes here. Psalm 107. If you open up your Bible pretty much to the middle, you'll hit the book of Psalms. Some have said it's sort of like the hymn book for the people of God. In Psalm 107, the first three verses go like this. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble, and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and the south. So the psalm opens up by saying, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. So for those people that the Lord has done something in their life, namely redemption, let them say so. Let them speak about that. Let them talk about it. Whether it's from the east or the west or wherever they were at, wherever God was on a mission to redeem people and he's pulled them into his people and saved them and changed them, let them talk about it. That's how the psalm begins. Now what happens in the rest of this psalm is four cycles of the same pattern. 
So let me tell you what the pattern is, and then I'll show you. The pattern is this. Some get in trouble through X, Y, and Z. And those people who get in trouble, that's the language that says some of them got in trouble for X, Y, and Z. They get in trouble, and then we're told they cried out to the Lord. Then we're told he delivered them. Then we're told they give thanks to the Lord. Then we're told something about the goodness of the Lord. His strength, his power, his might, his mercy. Something about who he is and what he has done and is doing for his people. So some people get in trouble. They cry out to the Lord. He delivers them. They give thanks and then they testify to his goodness. That's the pattern. Let's look at the the first cycle, verses 4 through 9. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. So some of them, right? Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry with good things. So some of them got in trouble. They cried out to the Lord. He delivered them. They gave thanks to him. And they testified about his goodness. Namely in this stanza that he fills the hungry with good things. Cycle number 2 verses 10 through 16. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death. Prisoners in affliction and in irons. Why is that? For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Really? Is there no one to help? Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. So there was someone to help. And he brought them out of darkness In the shadow of death, and he burst their bonds apart. Let them give thanks to the Lord for steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the bars of iron. How do you shatter bronze doors? How do you cut iron into? You can't. I mean, not with your own strength, you can't. But what this stanza is saying, the Lord can break in and do what no one else can do. Third cycle, 17 through 22. Some were fools. (laughs) Just going to go ahead and say it. I guess the psalm said, some were fools. Some were fools for their sinful ways. And because of their iniquities, suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and he healed them. And delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love. For his wondrous works to the children of man. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving. And tell of the deed, his deeds in songs of joy. They got in trouble. They cried out. He delivered. They give thanksgiving back to the Lord. And in this one, it says, not only do they tell of his deeds, but they tell of his deeds in songs of joy. They can't help but sing about him. And when they sing, they sing joyfully. For the interest of time, I won't read the fourth cycle. 
But something happens interestingly in that fourth cycle. In the last kind of event, they get in trouble, they cry out, the Lord delivers them, and then they give thanks to the Lord. And then that last cycle of testimony, giving testimony to the goodness of the Lord, it explodes into ten verses. And then we come to the final verse, verse 43. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Okay, slow down for a minute. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. What is these things? Well, in the context of the psalm, it, it seems to be the stories of redemption. What is wisdom according to the psalm? Wisdom is listening to the stories of the way that the Lord has redeemed people. He's on a mission to seek and save the lost, to use the language of Jesus. In the Gospel of Luke, from the east and the west, the north and the south, Jesus is redeeming people. And wisdom, according to this psalm, is listening, attending to these things. And by doing so, we do the last kind of clause of the last verse in this psalm. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. The way we consider, or I should say, one way we consider the steadfast love of the Lord is by listening to the stories of redemption. Because when we listen to the stories of redemption, we're not just listening to this person's story of redemption. We're listening to our story. Because their story is our story, if we have been redeemed. And when we listen to their story of redemption, which is also our story, we're not just listening to their story and our story. We're listening to the Lord's story of redemption. We're listening to the steadfast love of the Lord. What does it mean to be redeemed? I think we should talk about that just for a second. It's not uncommon to hear the language of redemption used in sports, right? You know, some basketball player or maybe a team, you know, uh, they have a bad season or they have a bad game at the end and then they work really hard in the offseason. They come back the next year and it's the year of redemption, right? They're going to go all the way. That's fine. That's the way that we use the word culture, that you work really hard and you redeem yourself. That's not the way the Bible would use the word redeemed. The way the Bible would use the word redeemed is to purchase someone back from slavery. And if we were to go to any Old Testament Israelite and say, what does redemption mean to you? What do you think of when you hear the word redeemed? They would doubtlessly think of a hundred little stories of redemption. But they would also for sure mention the big story of redemption in the Old Testament. The Exodus story. So in the Exodus story, God goes into Egypt. And he goes to the most powerful man in the world. Overseeing the most powerful nation in the world. And he enters into a hostage negotiations of sorts with him. Didn't go very well for Pharaoh. But he goes into that negotiation saying, let my people go. And he redeems them. He purchases his people out of the hand of Pharaoh's slavery, the hand that was upon them. And he purchases them out and he leads them into, eventually, the promised land where they worship the Lord. Where they can walk in freedom. Not freedom to do whatever they want, but the freedom to serve the Lord. A freedom they didn't have before. At least they weren't able to do that in its fullness. So redemption, according to the Bible, is being bought back from slavery and freed to a new life. A life that's free to serve the Lord. 
Now, we as Christians, when we think about redemption, where does our minds go? Well, doubtless to a hundred little stories of redemption, doubtless to the Exodus story, but most especially to the story of redemption in the person and work of Jesus. I don't have time to preach the whole passage. I'm really just going to make a passing comment at the end. But I do want to read this extended section from the book of Romans. Romans chapter 6. Where Paul speaks of redemption. And he speaks of baptism. And he weds them together in a wonderful way. The first line in Romans chapter 6 goes like this. What shall we say then? Or what shall we say then? So, Chapter 6 is coming after something, right? Chapter 5. And in chapter 5, as well as earlier in the gospel, Paul has been making this argument about what the gospel is. And especially in chapter 5, he's talked about this one name, this one man named Adam. Like Adam and Eve. And he says that through Adam, sin came into the world. And such, in such a way that every Adam after Adam, and every Eve, for that matter, after Adam, is, has a fallen condition. They're, they're, While made in the image of God, there's a problem with us. Our humanity is broken. We are not what we were meant to be. And that's all of the Adams and Adams and Eves that came after the original Adam. But, Paul says, there broke into the story another Adam, a second Adam. An Adam who was like the Adams, but not like the Adams in a very significant way. Adam was Jesus. And he came to seek and save the lost. And he died in their place on their behalf. And he rose from the dead. And so Paul then says in chapter 6, What shall we say then in light of this story of redemption? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Should we just do a lot more sinning so that grace would look better? Paul writes, By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So he's bringing in the language of baptism here. We were therefore buried with him by baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Enslaved. We need a redemption. We need a redeemer. Verse 7. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. To make you obey its passions. Who can make you obey something? A taskmaster could. But what if you've been set free from that taskmaster? What if his iron yoke no longer enslaves you? Verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God. As those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin shall have no dominion over you. Since you are not under law but under grace. There's a lot more there than we're going to cover this morning. 
If we ever preach through Romans, this is probably seven sermons by itself. But the main picture Paul is drawing from here is that of baptism. And he's saying that when a believer goes into the waters of baptism, it's saying that they're united to the death of Jesus in the way that Jesus died on the cross. So we're going into the waters of baptism. And when we come out of the waters of baptism, just as Jesus came out of the grave, so we too are saying we will come out of the grave with him because our story is his story. That's what baptism is saying. That's what redemption is. And so to me as a pastor, I can say the symbols of redemption in baptism and in the Lord's Supper are exciting to me because the realities they point to are exciting. And I hope for you, the realities of redemption are exciting and therefore the symbols will also be exciting. 